Well, good morning again. It does seem like a long time since I've stood up here. Um, you know, it is oftentimes quite helpful to get another set of eyes on something to really be able to see it, uh, maybe even to see it right for the first time, to get another perspective on things that we might be able to to really see something that we thought we had been able to see, thought we understood uh, all along. Um, I'm thinking here, here's as for one example in particular, is uh, this question, uh, what makes for a good Christmas? The answer to that question, perhaps another way of thinking about it, what makes for a good Christmas? Uh, we're actually still within the Christmas season, in case you don't know that. Some, we've already started grinching our house, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, that doesn't actually officially wrap up till Epiphany on January the 6th, hence my Magi tie. Um, so what makes for a good Christmas? That was actually a uh, question that was posed in a devotional guide that I've been reading during the Advent season, a devotional guide of collection of writings by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, theologian, spy, uh, among other things. Uh, Bonhoeffer, in getting at the answer to this question, says something rather striking. Now, if we were to answer the question, what makes for a good Christmas, many of us would probably answer, well, you know, it has to do with certain smells, right? That smell of that particular dish that needs to be baking and the wafting of the aromas coming from the kitchen, that makes for a good Christmas. Now I know it's, it's here and upon us. Or, you know, maybe it's the sights, the sights of the tree and particular ornaments and, and lights and garlands and, and whatever it was with your traditions and that sort of thing. Or maybe, maybe it's a certain sound, a person's voice that just <clears throat> does it for you in that holiday season or a song or whatever the case may be. But the reality is all of those things are rather elusive, right? We have no guarantee whatsoever year to year to year to year for a whole variety of reasons, that those things are going to be present and with us, those sights, those smells, those sounds, right? So if, if the answer to the question, what makes for a good Christmas, is limited to that, where are you? Where are you? Now, this is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer answered the question in a letter to his parents from a German prison on December 1st, 1943, as he was awaiting trial, um, the conclusion of which, spoiler, if you're reading his biography, uh, would eventually lead to his execution, uh, just on the eve of German surrender in 1945. But on December 1st, 1943, this is what he said. I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. Where is he writing from? German prison, awaiting trial. I think we're going to have an exceptionally good Christmas. The very fact that every outward circumstance preclude our making provision for it will show whether we can be content with what is truly essential. I used to be very fond of thinking up and buying presents, but now that we have nothing to give, the gift God gave us in the birth of Christ will seem all the more glorious. The emptier our hands the better we understand what Luther meant by his dying words. We're beggars, it's true. The poorer our quarters, the more clearly we perceive that our hearts should be Christ's home 
on earth. And his quarters were quite, in an earthly sense, quite poor that December. And yet, in that moment, our brother Dietrich Bonhoeffer could see more clearly than I know I usually do in the month of December. Sometimes it is vital that we get, I'm coming around the barn here, sometimes it's absolutely vital that we get another set of eyes, another perspective, another vantage point on a certain thing, a certain thing that we think we understand, that we get. Well, this morning we're going to get another vantage point. If you can see on the screen and on your bulletin, it's a cosmic view or heaven's perspective on Christmas. That's not to take away in any way from what we read in Matthew's account and Luke's account of the nativity and Jesus' arrival, the incarnation, God becoming man, not in any way. But this is a different, this is a peek behind the curtain. A whole nother way of seeing what was happening in the little town of Bethlehem. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, it's going to be on the screen as well. If you're trying to find it, it really couldn't be easier unless we're in Genesis, because Genesis would be the first book of the Bible right after the table of contents, and Revelation would be the last book just before the maps, okay? So Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time and thank you for gathering us here on this uh, first day of the year, the first day of this week here in the morning of that. Uh, May that be symbolic uh, for this upcoming year as we begin in your word and we begin here with this cosmic view of your coming and the the deep waters of that the great heights of that the broad extent the horizon of that uh, would you please help us to see the significance of this these visions that you gave to the apostle John not just for him and the early church but for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So when you get a gift, right, the normal thing you do is read the, the, the label, right? Who's it to? Who's it from? And then you start shaking, you dig into it, and like, what is it? Okay, so here's the label. Uh, this is who this gift is from, Revelation 12. That's the gift, okay? So here's who it's from, the Apostle John, 
The Apostle John is exiled uh, by Roman authorities to the Isle of Patmos. There he is in the late first century from, to, who is this gift to? To the church in Asia Minor, which is where Turkey is today. Um, that's the from, that's the to context. You start tearing, you rip off some paper, you start peeking into the box, you're now looking, you're looking, what are the contents of this gift? Now it's really the whole book of Revelation. So insights, th- themes, big themes, huge themes, who God is, who we are as his people, what his plans are, what his plans are for his people, how his plans, his purposes are wrapped up with us, his people, part of which, by the way, includes suffering. Trials, difficulty, struggles, heartache, all varying kinds. And so John is given this vision, uh, this and this gift of this vision. The church, the early church, is given this vision. And it wasn't just meant for idle speculation. This was not just meant to fill out a flow chart as to, well, this is what the end times are going to look like and then make predictions off of that. That's not what the book of Revelation was intended for. It was given as a gift. It was meant to connect to the lives, to the hearts, to the people in the midst of intense, great suffering there, the early church, our forebears, our brothers and sisters there in the late first century, undergoing tremendous pressure, accused by the Roman authorities as being, hard to believe this, but being cannibals, reason being because they spoke of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the head of their religion, cannibals. They were spoken of as being atheists, if you can believe this, right? But think with me, because they did not believe in the Roman gods. There was tremendous pressure to conform, tremendous pressure to compromise, Moral corruption, tremendous pressure that they were under, undergoing a a focus point of of intense hatred and hostility. This is the point in history, the emperor Domitian, a wave of persecution. Some authorities say as many as 40,000 Christians executed, not, not just persecuted, but executed, killed publicly for the public entertainment, bread and circuses. Really horrific, really horrible. Here's, that's, that's all history. That's not up for debate. Those things happened. Here's a question with this vision coming up beside that history. What sustained those people? What carried those people through those times? This vision did. The gift of the book of Revelation is part of, was part of the Lord's grace to his people in that time to sustain them, that they would be, to preserve them and enable them to persevere. Okay, what might the Lord's gift to us be to help to sustain us to persevere, that we would be preserved in our faith as we face pressures of all varying levels and, and kinds towards maybe compromise or corruption, whatever that may, may be, what might sustain? You know the answer to the question. I, you couldn't have set it up easier. Just put it on a waffle ball tee, right? This vision, this vision, it was not just a gift for Jesus' church then, but his church ever since 
that to sustain his people. You look at the effect it had upon the early church, the first century church. Now look at the effect that it could possibly, the great gift that we have in front of us today, now as this 21st century church as well. Let's just put it this way. A cosmic view of Christmas, explain that here in a minute. A cosmic view of Christmas, here Revelation 12, as we embrace that, as we get a hold of that, in that we will find strength to face the pressures we face all through the year. All through the year. And we're going to look at, break it down into three parts, into the three uh, visions, the three characters, the three personages that we see here in this vision. First, it's this in your outline. First, the woman. Second, the dragon. And thirdly, the child. What do we learn? And how does how do each one of those contribute to this bigger picture of this cosmic view of Christmas and how that might sustain and encourage us? All right, let's look at these in turn. First, the woman. Who is this? Who is this? Verses 1 and 2. Let's look at it again. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Who in the world is this? Her clothing is reminiscent of a dream that Joseph, the Jewish patriarch Joseph had, Genesis 37. You go back and look it up. Okay, It's reminiscent. It points back to that. The stars, the 12 stars, pointing back to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, her pregnancy pointing to the times of preparation and struggle that God's people have had through the ages. Okay? Who is she, though? It would seem that she's not just... She is Mary, but not just Mary. She is the mother of Jesus, but not just the mother of Jesus, not just in terms of a singular figure. She seems to represent Mary's people, God's people, before and after the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. God's people both in the Old and the New Testament. So this is not just Mary, but Mary's people. This is, this is the church through the ages. The woman is the church. Now, let's think in terms of the actions, not just the images, but the actions. What's taking place? Not just the nouns, but the verbs here. So she gives birth to a male child and then flees into the wilderness, the wilderness, Hardly an, an unknown term, an unknown image, unrepeated image, hardly, in the Scriptures. Time and again, the, the wilderness is a place. Old and New Testament, whenever it's referred to, is, is uh, not just an historical reality in, a, in a, a place on a map, but a time and an experience that drives God's people into dependence upon Him, exposing our weakness, exposing our vulnerability, driving us again into dependency upon Him. And yet at the same time, while exposing us, His protection, His nurture, His care there in the wilderness. When you get down to verse 6, you see it alluded to as uh, a place in that wilderness prepared by God, a, a time, a specific time in which He would nourish and care and cherish His people. So the woman is the church. Now, why is that worth knowing? And, and why, how might that have connected to the early church, given what they were experiencing at the time? And how might that connect to us here today? The reality is, 
on this side, if all we have is this side of the curtain, we can't see on the other side. If all we see is what's on the stage, and if all we see is what's going on in our lives, Saturday, Sunday to Saturday, 24-7, then it, it would appear, and oftentimes things appear hopeless. Right? Things look dire. Th- things look desperate. Sometimes it feels like we are under siege. Sometimes it feels like we've been abandoned. But the reality is when we take a step behind the curtain, or rather when the Lord in His mercy opens up the curtain and helps us to see what's actually going on all the time, we see we actually have a place prepared. Even in the wilderness, we have a place prepared. And God in His grace and His mercy and His kindness to us is nourishing us even even in the wilderness. His people, in the, as John is delivering this vision and as this thing is circulating among the churches in Asia Minor and circulating all of the world in the ages since, here's what we hear. Your solace is as real as your struggle. The solace, my people, I have to give you is as real, maybe even more so, because it's like an eclipse, more real than your struggle. My peace that I give to you, my care, my mercy I give to you. Again, keeping in mind, this is the, the, the period, the context in which the, the people of God are receiving this cosmic view of Christmas, giving them, giving us insight a different vantage point, a different perspective on our struggles and God's care in the midst of them. We have but to look to Him in the wilderness, in the wilderness. All right, that's the woman. Let's push on. Just uh, for time's sake, push on to the second personage, the second figure here, the dragon, verses 3 through 4. What is going on here? Who is this? And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red Dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when he bore her child, she bore her child, he might devour it. Oh my goodness, what is going on here? Well, clearly, the, the dragon is a fearsome, horrific, strong, mighty, terrifying figure. We don't have to guess who it is. If you just keep reading past where we stopped a few minutes ago, and sorry, uh, AJ, I didn't give you guys this slide, Uh, but if you just keep reading just a little bit further, verse 7 and following, you can see exactly who this is. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, so that's who this is. Now, moving again from the nouns to the verbs, from the images to the actions, what's going on? He, he, he attacks with the desire to destroy, to destroy this child. And if you keep reading, to destroy his people, to destroy the church as well. What's going on? What's, what's, what's behind that? What we're seeing here, what we're getting a glimpse into, again, 
a cosmic view of Christmas, a deeper understanding, a better perspective vantage point, is Satan's hatred of God's purposes and his people. A hatred that has been there, I was going to say from the beginning. Not quite, just a blip past the beginning. It has been there for a blip past the beginning of all things. There in the Garden of Eden, in his deceiving Adam and Eve, we see his hatred of God and his purposes. In the murder of Cain, excuse me, Cain's murder of Abel. In the uh, corruption of the faithful in Noah's day. In the uh, assimilation by the Canaanites of Abraham's people in his day. The attempted genocide by Pharaoh and in Egypt, and then later by Haman in Persia, the murderous attack on the, and, and um, slaughter of the innocents, as is oftentimes said, there of the children there in Bethlehem, Herod trying to kill Jesus, Judas's treachery, the Jewish plots, on and on. This is, this is yes, there were human figures on the front stage, but behind that, driving all of that, is Satan's animosity, hatred, approach and attack against God's purposes and his people. He hates the people of God and the purposes of God. And we have to say emphatically, he is our enemy. He is our enemy. And strictly speaking, no one else. And you say yes. Sorry, I'm not picking on you, Matt. But you say yes, but do we believe that? That strictly speaking, Satan is our enemy. Strictly speaking, no one else is. Do we believe that? Think with me. When you don't know who your enemy is, you don't know how to engage with him. If you don't know who your enemy actually is, you have no idea how to engage in his approach and attack. So, okay, it's college football season, almost the end, I know. But it's bowl season, I know. And, and uh, let me think, I'll get this right. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Okay, so f- I just said this this morning. Fans of Michigan and Ohio State got half their wish yesterday that the other didn't win. <laughs> right? Am I right? I'm right. So it's in the middle, of, we're in the middle of the throes of college football season, but, but uh, the bowl season, but think with me. Let's say your team, your coach, takes the field and they have no idea what game they're playing. They think they've come suited up for a flower festival. How well will they fare? I mean, I don't, I mean seriously, how well will they fare if that's what they think they're in for? Or let's say they did come thinking they're playing football. Not football, but football. But the coach has them ready and has all the strategy in place for the wrong team. A team, but the wrong team. How well will they fare? You see, I hope you see where I'm going with this. Do we know who our enemy actually is? Do we know actually how to engage with his approach and his attacks? Do we really know? Because to the degree that we think another human being or a party or a movement is our enemy, we will engage in the completely inappropriate way. And we do. 
I do. We do. We all do. We lose sight of who the enemy actually is. Now, now John is seeing behind everything, behind Rome, and the okay, it's ugly, it's horrific, people are dying, yes. But behind that was Satan. Behind the malice of Rome was the hatred of Satan. John's uh, fellow apostle, Paul, in Ephesians 6, makes this very clear to us. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Then eat this crucial word, for. So do that for, put on the whole armor of God so you'll be able to take your stand against the schemes of the devil for, because within light of this reality, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But against the realities, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Knowing who your enemy is determines how you will engage with him. So if our enemy is not a person, a party, or a movement, but Satan, how do we engage with that? You pray. You pray with conviction and assurance and leading hard on your king. We're about to talk about him in just a second. How he shows up in this vision. But we do not get down in the mud with our quote-unquote human enemies because they're not our enemy. They're not our enemy. God's people have a completely different playbook. Now, moving on from the woman, from the dragon, to the child, to the child, verses 5 through 6. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she was to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, who is this? Who is this? What's going on? This child, a child, a newborn child. Oh, my goodness, what an image. Of, of, an image of, of weakness, right? Of vulnerability, of helplessness. A child born come from this woman, which tells us whoever he is, he's like us. He was born, right? There's a human nature to this child, and yet there's so much more because if you keep reading, you just think about the imagery here. Goodness gracious, if you look at the book of, rest of the book, you see that this child came from the woman, from us, for us. From us, for us. Okay, now again, moving from the nouns to the verbs, from the images to the actions, we see him ruling with a rod. Now, actually, the English, the ESV, and I don't know what the other translations are, they're probably all the same. It's, it's ruling. Rule, he rules. Well, actually, the verb is shepherd. Worth noting. He shepherds, rules, however you want to think of it, with this rod. Not just with the staff, right? Staff being that big stick that, you know, with the crook in the thing that's meant to guide the little sheepies and keep them from going in the wrong direction, which we need. But Rod is a weapon. 
It's a defensive weapon held in the other hand by the shepherd to protect the sheep from their enemy. It's, it's, it's an image of power and might and, you could say, yes, rules. So it's not surprising that a lot of our translations do say he rules with this rod. A rod, by the way, not made of wood, but made of what? Iron. Again, speaking to the strength and the power and the rule of this one. Now, he is caught up, alluding to Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's what that's, that's alluding to is recorded for us in Luke's gospel and in the first book of, excuse me, in the first chapter of Acts, uh, mean, pointing us, reminding us, as though we couldn't have seen this elsewhere in the book of Revelation, but the, the kingdom and the king has come. The kingdom has come, but is yet to come, yet to come in full. It is here, really, but not fully. That king is coming again. That king has come, and he's coming back. That's the idea here. That king has come and is coming back. We live between his comings, between the two advents. So yes, it does seem at times as though we're alone. And when we allow ourselves to get deluded and and deceived into this, we do think that our enemy are other people. And sometimes it appears that this mighty king that we have is only meek. Sometimes it seems that he's more lamb than lion. But the reality is he rules with this rod of iron, and he is coming. He is coming. He is coming and is coming. So we are, despite appearances, again, this is this cosmic view of Christmas, empowering, enabling, encouraging the church in the the first century and all through down to the 21st century with this message. You are not without help and hope. You are not without help and hope. And as the angel said, respectively, to Mary and to Joseph, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, think with me. Think with me why we need to hear that. Because of how how debilitating and destructive our fears can be and in the ways we act out of them. In the ways that we act out of our fear, how debilitating and destructive that can be to ourselves and to the people around us as we act, as we think, speak, act out of our fears. As we strike back, as we pull back, and as we try and seize the wheel to take control. Think how desperately we need to hear this message. Do not be afraid. Your king has come. He rules with a rod of iron, and he is coming back to set us and all things right. Do not be afraid. You don't need to lash back. You don't need to pull back, and you don't need to seize control of the wheel because we have a king. That is our cosmic view of Christmas. And it is a gift indeed, a real gift indeed. The Gospels show us what was happening on the scene. Revelation shows us what's happening behind the curtain. And this message is partly what the Lord in His grace gave and used to sustain His people in the midst of great duress. Now, we're going to shift now to this celebration of the supper. And there's something else that He gave His people to sustain them. 
that we have today. Not this, just this vision, but this sacrament. As we have, we, our, our physical senses are engaged and the Lord in His mercy and through His Spirit communicates deep, profound spiritual truths into our hearts even as we do this. Such is His love that He desires to seal that love and assure us of it even here this morning. Put it this way. As we partake of the bread, stacked, <laughs> as we partake of that bread and that cup and drink of the cup, the Lord is sealing this message to our hearts. My child, as surely as you eat this bread and drink from this cup, I have done everything needed to secure your salvation. Everything. Lay your heart's hope on that. Rest and put your faith there. My child, my child, I am with you now to encourage and enable you to do everything I've called you to do. Now rest in that and love one another. My child, I am coming again. As surely as I came before, I am coming again. Take heart and have hope. These are the things that he is sealing to us here this morning. Let me read to you these words from 1 Corinthians 11. Paul taps into all of this. Starting in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. It was obvious in all of that what the purpose of this time, the sacrament is, uh, and in that it tells us something both of who should partake of it and how they should do so. So if you're here this morning... You're not a follower of Jesus. That's not where your heart is. For instance, as we were reciting from the Nicene Creed earlier, and you knew in your, you know, your conscience that's not really where you are, then it would not make sense. It would not be right. And we don't want you to feel pressured in any way at all to take of the bread and the cup. Not yet. But I would plead with you, keep wrestling, keep asking your questions, and don't stop. Don't stop. Find someone who can help you getting those answers so that perhaps next time we do this, you can join with us. And if, in fact, also we have to say, if you are a professing believer, but you know yourself to be in willful sin, rebelling against the Lord, then again, this is, it would not make sense for you to be partaking of the bread and the cup in this moment because you need to repent. You need to turn from that willful rebellion. The Lord desires that we would know His love for us. 
that we would know his love for us. And that's why he's given us this sacrament to seal that, to remind us, yes, but to seal that upon our, our hearts.